and Apex Lab Podcast. Hey there, welcome to the Level Up Engineering Podcast, where we speak to the most experienced technology leaders from around the world. So stay with us to learn actionable management insights to take your engineering team to the next level. This show is powered by Apex Lab, a team of experts in end-to-end digital product development. ApexLab.io Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Level Up Engineering Podcast. I am Karolina Toth, and today it is my pleasure to welcome Tyler Hartley with us, who is the Director of Software Engineering at Johnson & Johnson. Let us jump into Tyler a little bit. Welcome. I am so glad you could join us. Before we we talk about today's topic, let me ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are, what your passions are. Sure. Great question. So let's see. Yeah, my name is Tyler. I I live out here in Seattle, Washington. Been here quite a while. My background is in engineering and specifically biomedical engineering. Thought I wanted to be a scientist, like a true scientist for a long time. I feel you. Moved to Seattle to get a PhD and quickly discovered that the world of actual industry of delivering something into the market, into customers' hands that makes an impact, uh, and doing so sort of with something that's good enough, something that's 90% of the way there, was really my passion. Science really demands a different kind of rigor. So quickly transitioned into industry, kind of did my time as a software engineer. I'm still a software engineer at heart, very much so, and enjoy working on side projects as much as I can with two little kids. In addition to that, I've I've transitioned from being an individual contributor to an engineering manager of the last four years or so, five years, which has really, I think, drawn out a lot of my passions that that are relevant to what we're going to talk about today. I feel very passionately about how to build these functional teams uh, and seek that harmony that actually delivers software quickly. Thank you. So without further ado, let's jump in. We are talking about building and shaping a truly agile organization with the caveat of not just a scrum team, but an organization. Right. So before we jump into the topic, I love my cliffhangers. So before we jump into the topic, I would love to hear what software engineering at Johnson & Johnson does or look like. I'm sure maybe most of our listeners don't associate Johnson & Johnson with software engineering precisely. So maybe give us a bit of context as to where you're coming from. That's a great question. And I mean, this is what I have to talk about with software engineering candidates. Johnson & Johnson's famous for Band-Aids and Benadryl and vaccinations. But digital technology is a new venture for J&J. So I work in an organization called Digital Surgery, which is trying to, I mean, it's fairly apparent from the name, trying to digitize all aspects of surgery, preoperative, intraoperative, and postoperative. And not just digitize for the sake of digitization, but to actually add value, right? With either assisting intraoperatively, and that could be in the form of pure software, like decision support, or what's called digital hard goods, so a robotic surgical device. And then there's preoperative planning for surgery and postoperative opportunities. So you could use software. One thing we're working on is to reconstruct from these little slices of your body that you get out of a, a CAT scan or an MRI, these DICOM images, reconstruct a 3D model of the body from that, almost like Google Earth for the human body. Allow precise measurements to be made, even predictions of what will happen if you make a certain incision or you know, a, a certain resection and really plan for your surgery in a really meaningful way, as well as post-operatively, and this is actually how I got into this business. Surgical assessment and performance review is a huge part of our platform. So there's a company called CSATS that I was the first engineer on that's actually how I found my way into J&J through acquisition. And that company's focused on, like I was saying, performance evaluation of surgeons. I like to talk about it in sort of a sports analogy, which is that every sports player nowadays, you watch film what you do when you're done because you have this incredible opportunity to learn from your own behaviors from your own experience and if you connect that to data-driven insights and to experts in your field you get this really robust learning community which is something that surgery has never had it is typically a very siloed 
very isolated world that does not have any kind of continuous improvement baked into it, really. So, yeah. I love that. Thank you so much. This is like so cool. It sounds like yeah. you are on the cutting edge of medicine, basically, which is awesome. So now we are getting into the real topic, ladies and gentlemen, it only took us a few minutes. Building an agile organization. Let's begin with now we know what software engineering you do and and what kind of software engineering and it sounds really cool and awesome. I have to say I I'm a cognitive scientist by trade and I wanted to get a PhD but then I just decided to yeah. to not do it at the end for very similar reasons than than what you have mentioned. Really? So, let's define agile for the purposes of our conversation, what it means and what it means for you particularly. Yeah, I thought a lot about how I wanted to to introduce this because I do think agile has a hundred definitions and a hundred places. I think commonly and certainly the way I was introduced to agile was that it's the same as scrum. Like agile is two week sprints with daily standups. Like that's what agile is. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Certainly as I've progressed as an engineer and, and now I'm leading different teams, I actually would like to walk back to the Agile Manifesto, which which articulates a few points that uh, I'm not sure if people have actually ever read. So the Agile Manifesto is a 2001 manifesto that really kicked off the Agile movement. And sure, there's a lot in there that it might be tough to tie to daily actions, but there are four statements that I think are very digestible and very straightforward and really connect to the spirit of Agile. So I hate to be the person to like read from the dictionary, but they're very short. So, so let me just read a few of them. The first is individuals and interactions over processes and tools. So prefer individuals and interactions over processes and tools. The second is prefer working software over comprehensive documentation. Customer collaboration over contract negotiation. And this one is certainly the heart of Agile, the last one. Responding to change over following a plan. If I could boil it down to a single sentence, I'd say it's probably the last one is the most descriptive. Is prefer responding to change or following a plan. And to me, Agile is born from this need, this fundamental failure of planning to anticipate all the kinds of changes you will run into during a project. And most importantly, to anticipate your customer needs completely, right? I think you have to obliterate the concept that by getting enough people and the right people in a room for long enough and uncovering requirements for long enough and talking to enough customers, you can somehow chart the five-year path of, well, here's exactly what we need to build. We'll ship it and we'll be done. We, we did and the, in five years from now, the entire world will be just the same as it is right now because we have made the plane. Right. And that is sort of the, the presumption under you know, a more waterfall approach is that it's possible to make those plans, follow them, and reach success. And Agile tells you, no, it's not don't make a plan. And that's certainly, it's sometimes over-messaged as Agile is just do whatever you want. No, it's respond to change, prefer doing that over making a plan. So make a plan and then expect, not just expect, know that it will change. And so that's another line that you'll find in the Agile Manifesto is if you go farther down, it's uh, we welcome changing requirements, even late ones, because if they're customer driven and if you groomed your organization to be gathering requirements in a way that the requirements aren't just, well, a stakeholder wants this. It's this requirement is actually meaningful for the value that our customer will receive. Then you welcome that late requirement. Whenever that epiphany comes to you, you're thankful to have received it, even if it's at the 11th hour. That's OK, because it's important that you've learned it now. And what's hilarious to me, or certainly what I experience in more waterfall teams, is that these events still happen. It's not as though you can make these events disappear, stop, but you're unprepared for them. And then there's a scrambling and there's a blame game that happens. How is it that we missed this requirement? It was always going to happen. It's not your fault. Late requirements or new requirements are the nature of evolving product market fit. They're the healthy actual world just hitting you yeah so 
you are putting that. welcoming in a whole new different perspective you know you are like oh this is within the nature mm -hmm. of how we develop our products okay now we know what agile means or we have a glance i really recommend everyone to go to read the agile manifesto i think that's how i got into agile a few years ago yeah and it tells you a lot more than than what people think when they think about scrum scrum is only one way to do it yeah, it's a process. And Agile says, you know, that process might not be the best process for right. everything. I'm always telling people the process through which you achieve Agile itself must be Agile, right? Adapt your processes. If two-week sprints aren't right for you, then do something different. If, if stand-ups aren't working, I mean, adapt them. I generally think that they're a great starting point. But as your team evolves and you learn who your team members are, and your team develops its own attitudes and interests and behaviors, Adapt to your team, right? And oh let them let your team advocate for what those changes need to be. I just facilitated the post-mortem and uh, I am just definitely going to recommend all team members listen to this episode, regardless of what we're going <laughs> to say. I already think it's worth uh, recommending. Okay, now we have defined it. Let's talk about what it means for an organization to be agile because our listeners are coming from software development companies, they are coming from product companies, they are coming from agencies. So they come from a whole new verse of companies. So let's think about what an agile organization must achieve. Great question. And I think let's start from the customer or let's start from the experience that's on the other side of your business, right? What your customer should see from an agile business and what the, what the product should look like is that it's constantly evolving and improving based on customer feedback and whatever valuable metrics your business has determined, measure that customer satisfaction or that product market fit or that you know, revenue generation, whatever it is that you've decided, those numbers are, you're constantly iterating and moving towards improvement of that. There'll be steps back, but for every step back, you'll make three steps forward. So I think if you're not seeing that, if, if the business has sort of launched a 1.0 and there's not really an opportunity to gather new requirements, there's not a connection to customer, then to me, that's, that's the opposite of Agile. So yeah, you're iterating quickly, you're changing. Some metaphor I like to describe is if you've, if you've ever looked at like an amoeba under a microscope, or just imagine that, right? It's this blob. And an amoeba changes its shape constantly based on its environment. If it detects food or some sort of nutrition in one direction, it grows a little arm that goes that way. Right. When the food goes away, it retracts that and brings it back. It's never the same shape twice. It's constantly moving. So the other statement is like, certainly there is no Nirvana Agile organization who has reached Nirvana. They have done Agile now, and they just wake up each morning and flip through. And the they're done. No, it is constant change, constant work, constant evolution. If you're aligned to that philosophy above, though, that we sort of started defining, though, you know that's how you know how you need to change your amoeba organization. You, you sense the directions it needs to grow constantly. Okay. This sounds all cool and great, and usually it's more toward the end of a conversation when I bring up this perspective, but I feel that with... The Agile Manifesto, it comes up quite often, or at least in my working environments, it came up more often than not. How can we put this philosophy into right. business? Great question. And and that's really the that's the hard part. We we can talk philosophy. And I it's so important to have a shared philosophy with your team. Otherwise, this next part's never gonna actually come to fruition. Because if some people are focused on other goals, others objectives. You won't get there. But yeah, this is the meat and potatoes of, of the actual job. So I think the reason I picked this topic or that we decided we want to talk about this topic today was that I frequently find organizations describing Agile as an engineering practice. It's like, oh, well, it's an Agile engineering team. And that is a huge miss. To me, that is actually an engineering team cannot be Agile. It, an organization can be Agile. And so... How do you do this? The entire organization has to be bought in philosophically. If your sales team, if, you're, if your marketing arm isn't bought in on constant small iterations of your product that happen quickly, then the engineering team itself can't be agile, 
right? Because they're going to be given, hey, guys, uh, the next iteration of our product is going to be a spaceship. Today we have nothing. 1.0 is a spaceship. So you're going to sit there and build a spaceship. It's going to take you years and billions of dollars. So it doesn't matter if you're following two-week sprints and doing stand-ups. You're, you're following Scrum, but you're not agile, right? That whole organization has to be bought in. And, and most crucially, for those folks who haven't worked in an organization like this, there's a, a heart within the business that's the product development life cycle. that has a few different disciplines that really drive it. Engineering, obviously, is a huge one. But in a lot of modern tech and, and certainly software as a service type programs, you actually have a, an organization of product management sitting at the head of that product development lifecycle. And then these other stakeholders and other, other seats at the table are design and engineering and sometimes things like program. If you start to get more complex, you'll have a, maybe a testing org or a system engineering org. But in general, those three pillars, I'd say, are design, engineering, and product, with product sitting at the head of the table and really helping to actually drive, if we, if we talk about Agile, to drive these definition of scope for each sprint and really iterate on the minimally lovable product each sprint, getting something functional out the door every, you know, let's say it's a two-week sprint, getting something out the door every two weeks. So the, the basic pillars of building an organization require you to kind of have these functions and for them to understand the role they play. If people are stepping on each other's toes too much or if people are unsure of the role, if engineering, for instance, thinks that its role is to define scope by itself, the next release, you don't have an agile organization. Can we define for our listeners and for our conversation what each department yeah. Uh, department's role is just in an ideal scenario and i know it can differ in different situations but like what does product do what mm -hmm. does engineering do and what does design do if we are just kind of laying out the initial roadmap so to say gotcha yeah let's get down to basics i think that would be very helpful so and maybe it'd also be helpful for me to cover a little bit just about some of those scrum ceremonies that I think are frequently done along with Agile that kind of speak to those programs. Yeah, so engineering, probably fairly self-explanatory. These are the folks who are, are writing code, testing, and delivering that code. Design or UX, these are the folks who, given product requirements, given the requirements for a specific feature, are collaborating really closely with engineering to design how is that going to land in the user experience? And, and that often ends up with mock-ups or, or wireframes of the website. There are all kinds of things I could talk about about how that interaction can be made really effective, but that's the very short description of, of what design is doing. Product, product management is sort of tough to pin down because it's a catch-all for all these other things, but at its core, the product organization speaks for the customer and the business at the same time. It, is this the buck stops here type of problem where someone's got to define the minimally lovable product? And there are all kinds of stakeholders who are going to give input into that. Sales, marketing, of course, engineering and design, and of course, the customer primarily. Someone's got to synthesize that and make the hard calls of, okay, the next iteration of our product that's going to add value includes X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't include A and B. And that is the decision based on all the various feedback they've gotten and, and the integration of so many stakeholders. That's that amoeba changing shape. It's the constant evaluation of those trade-offs and making really tough calls and seeing what happens. And that's the trick about Agile is that if you're making small incremental improvements, the penalty for making the wrong choice is small. You'll find out that you messed up quickly. And something that I learned from science is that a test result that's negative, a test result that's a failure, it can be just as valuable. It tells right. you where not to go. Right. Too often, I think we're focused on only you know, the positive metrics, but the negative ones guide you too. With all of that put into question or put into the basket, the philosophical basket that we have here, in an agile organization, leadership is not the product team, it's, it's leadership within an organization, how should leadership behave to be considered an agile leadership in this sense? 
That's a fantastic question and gets at, I think, some of the biggest challenges that organizations face when they go agile, quote unquote. The leadership needs to be bought in on a few sometimes very controversial concepts. The first one is that, that comes to mind at least, is that this idea of planning a massive monolithic release. Hey, here's the here's the laundry list of things we need. When can you get it done? You've already you're you're walking in the opposite direction of agile. If you're having that discussion, if if your leadership parses progress and parses your quarterly or annual milestones that way, you have some very tough conversations to have. There's a great article from Atlassian called Stop Going Agile. And and one of the first things they talk about in there is how do you stop the question of, but when will it be done? It, It might seem like what I'm saying is I'm allergic to deadlines or I'm allergic to commitments. That's just not true at all. It's that if what the business is focused on is, and your leaders are focused on is, Okay, here's our laundry list of things, right? Here's the spaceship. We, we need a spaceship, guys. When can it be done? It's impossible to actually deliver in an agile fashion under that measurement of success. So what I would want to see from leadership, and certainly the way that I talk about it to leadership is, hey, the customer wants a spaceship. The customer wants to go to the moon. But, you know, having talked about it, it's not that they want to go to the moon. It's that they want to get across the country pretty quickly. So the first thing we're going to do, what we can do in the next sprint, is that we can build them a bicycle. I understand it's not it's not the spaceship or it's not the ultrasonic jet that gets you to the opposite side of the country in an hour, but it's a start. And I think the customer's going to find value in it. After that, we're going to possibly think about adding a motor to the bike. What we're going to really do is we're going to launch the bike. We're going to learn from customers that that's working for them, get feedback. And actually, we might add a third wheel. I don't know. It might be a motor. It might be a tricycle. We don't really know. Again, we're we're working towards that ultrasonic jet. That's the kind of conversation that you need from leadership is that what they want to see is incremental value being delivered. To put it in scrum terms, they want to see velocity. That's what an agile leadership group would actually be looking for is that velocity of tickets going out the door and that the business can demonstrate that what it ships incrementally is increasing value for customers, however you define it. I love that. I, lo- I love that. Um, I hope many business leaders can hear us and maybe be a little fuzzier with deadlines to begin with, and then maybe just shift over to deliverables. Right. Yeah, and I might say, certainly it's not deadlines are the enemy and, and never commit to anything. Uh, but it's more like that agile, the way the agile manifesto phrases things, prefer incremental value delivery over committing to a large-scale deadline because any organization that commits these huge deadlines, you see the way that you spend as much time managing those deadlines as you do developing. It, it starts to really drag you down. Right. Before we get into any deeper into Agile, let's just show our listeners that we understand that it is not the hammer that needs to be used in every case you build anything. Is there any circumstances when Agile is not the most beneficial working method? Absolutely. In many like sort of SAP businesses, Agile is the norm. It's it's starts to become almost, when I interview people, I'm like, ah, oh, have you worked on an Agile Scrum team? I mean, I've never had anyone say no. But the flip side is true. There are times where it's inappropriate or there are times just where there's better methodologies, whether it's waterfall or spiral. So some examples that come to mind there would be, I know I mentioned the spaceship thing. If you're building something that you get a chance to only build once, then it's going to be shipped to a place where you can't incrementally update it with ease. That might be embedded software. That might be, you know, yeah, my spaceship analogy. If you work at NASA and you are launching the Mars rover, you get one chance. There's no agile, right? You need to get it right the first time. It's a completely different philosophy. And so there are plenty of examples, I think, where, where that's actually the kind of software you're building. I, those are some extreme examples, but you can imagine smaller examples too. I often find that product 1.0 launches, like very first launches, it's really tough to be agile. You're not iterating on anything. You have nothing. You are trying to get to that very first birth of a product. 
and agile sort of can only be done in these fits and starts. I mean, yes, you're maybe delivering incremental value, but it's like a feature floating in the middle of nothing. So often I find that getting to a 1.0, you have to kind of adapt agile. You can't be truly agile yet. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also important not to get into bad habits during that phase, because once you get to 1.0, you really start to be able to sprint and iterate and be agile. Okay. Thank you for the clarification. Is there anything else you would like to add to that? One additional thought there is that, and this is where, again, Scrum has really dominated the definition of Agile to such a degree that sometimes they're inseparable. Two-week sprints, that's just a common pattern. I often have people ask me, oh, well, you know, I work on, at J&J, there's software as a medical device, which you can imagine has much more complex dependencies, but much closer to that NASA example. And they say, well, we can't do Agile because these releases are so large and so complex and we have to go through so much validation and verification. You can do Agile. You're still incrementally improving your product. Your, your time scale is just very different. Uh, there's still lessons to be learned and there are still processes and, and sort of behaviors to adapt there. So I'm just trying to say the definition of Agile is, is broad. It goes back to those philosophies. It's not two-week sprints. The definition of Agile is Agile. <laughs> yeah <laughs> basically exactly. um so if we circle back to the organization let's say someone is now interviewing and wants to make sure that they are joining a truly agile organization rather than just a scrum team or a scrum based engineering team or or anything like that what signs should they look for for example during the interview process Mm -hmm. or in the first 90 days or even in the first months what are some of the positive signs of an agile organization and what are some of the red flags that they should watch out for i think if you're let's say you're interviewing like you said and you're trying to evaluate a team, it's tough because you're not on the ground. You, you can't feel it out. But th- I think there's some questions you could ask that start to drive at, is this truly an agile organization or is it just a, a scrum team masquerading as one? When we talk about those philosophies earlier, right, one of the one of the key ones was that, that you're responding to change over following a plan. And another one of the core principles of agile is phrased this way, that simplicity, the art of maximizing the amount of work not done is essential. And I think you can get at that by asking questions like, when's the last time you deleted a feature, retired a feature? What's the most recent thing you just cut? Because certainly if you're truly agile, right? If you're that amoeba, sometimes the amoeba pulls its arm back in and says, well, there's nothing over there. And products bloat with useless features if you aren't culling your your code base and your, your set of features based on functionality. So I, I'd love it if, but if I asked that question and somebody came back with a big one, they were like, yep, we had this whole service and it just kind of didn't work out. And so we, we retired it. Another one in that same vein is what's a recent bit of customer feedback you got that changed what you were building, right? Because you want to see that they're responding to change if you're following a plan. In my opinion, you should have immediate examples. I can think of tons myself, right? Where Are you at the liberty of telling us one, perhaps? Sure. One example? Yeah. So let's see. It makes me think of some of the work we did with recording hardware, actually, that went into operating rooms and and ran a piece of software. So as we're building that, we're talking to customers. We have key opinion leaders, we call them surgeons, who help us think about what's going to work, what's not going to work. And when you're in the operating room, when you're delivering software that goes into the operating room, it's it's in a pretty high-stress environment. The customer is using your software really wish that they didn't have to. It's a it's a stumbling block to their actual job, which is taking a Cutting huge people. their hands, right? The <laughs> fact that you're asking them to touch a button on a screen is like the last thing on their mind. So we were building some software to, to do that video recording. And, and we presumed that what the surgeons would want to do is like type in a passcode to ensure that when they start the recording, it's only them starting the recording and that they would, they would want it blocked. Uh, and the feedback I got was just an unequivocal no from a surgeon I spoke to. I was like, listen, frankly, I'm probably going to have one of my nurses do this. I'm not going to be, so either you're, I'm going to put my passcode on the sticky note and stick it to the device, which is pointless, right? Right. Or I just need you to remove that. It's not 
going to add any value. It's going to add friction. And I'm just not going to do it. So we realized we were really barking up the wrong tree there. And actually, that feedback led to an ongoing philosophy of, of that service, which was zero friction, zero effort, as much as possible. Thank you for sharing that. That is really cool. And uh, I feel like all these lines between who does what just becomes really fuzzy. Like this sounds like a really UX related question, you know, like what do the users do with your product? Right. And then you are here, the director of engineering, and you are telling me this story because it really made the product different while you are developing it. Absolutely. That's it, such a great point. You know, when we talk about what makes a good agile organization or how would you know an organization is agile, let's say you've been working someplace one month, those, those product design and engineering core components of the product development lifecycle, yes, they need to know their role, but the lines are blurred because good ideas come from anywhere. Engineers as well. I, I like to say I hire product engineers, not software engineers. The software is the vehicle to deliver the product. Yes. And I mean, I'm not downplaying the value of terrific you know, code itself. And there's, there's value inherent in code. But what I mean by that is that each engineer understands the line of code they're writing. I want them to understand why, what actual customer impact is this intended to have and to have a real deep connection to that. I feel like engineers are going to be like really every line of code. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but what I'm trying to draw is a line of CSS. I've had engineers raise their hand and be like, listen, you know, this line of CSS, because it adds, I think that a black background in the OR is going to be better given how the lights are dim. A white background is going to just be this glaring, bright screen shining in. And, you know, I don't remember where that idea came from, but it's a great call out. It's the right call out. And yes, it's a single line of code. One line of CSS that you should change that has a really possibly meaningful impact on the customer. It's a very insightful thing. Okay, so the engineer needs to know what the product is and why the product is delivering any feature, right. and especially the features that they are working on. How well should an engineer know the entire product or just the specific features that they're working on, in your opinion? It's tough because it's a big ask to know the entire product. I think the answer there is a little bit organizational and managerial as well. If you're putting, let's say you work on Facebook, obviously, I don't think there's a human alive who, who understands the entire code base that makes up facebook.com, right? There's probably literally no one alive. So, okay, granted, you're never going to say, oh yeah, when I make this code change, I understand how that's going to impact 75 other downstream services and 1,500 languages and yada, yada, yada. I think it's important to decouple. With something that big, you should be building decoupled services, decoupled products that have a very terse boundary. Not just terse uh, in terms of a terse API boundary, but, a, but a, also a minimal product boundary. I'm, I'm not saying that Google has, you know, the only brilliant solution or, or is the, is the end-all be-all of this but when you look at something like G Suite, when you look at the way that your calendar and your email interact, and, and increasingly these integrations seem to strangely actually go a little too far. But for the longest time, there was basically no integration between those two services that probably share a remarkable amount of code and certainly share a ton of, of UI. Those services are really decoupled. They might exchange data in a, who knows, it could be a, the world's smallest five-line API with 10 pieces of metadata in it, and that's it. Then, then what you can say is an engineer knows, they know that input, and then they know the calendar app that they work on. Because to get to your question, I think that especially senior engineers need to understand the downstream impacts of what they build, or you're going to introduce chaos. Code changes will have unexpected effects to different parts of your product. And I think that really, again, Engineers and product managers go hand in hand. So your, your product managers can have the same problem. The trade-offs that they're going to evaluate for the success, success of the product is going to somehow actually cause a negative effect on this other product, unless they're fairly decoupled. Now that we know how much engineers need to get into the knowledge of the entire product. Which is as much me, as you can. 
yeah. <laughs> let me step back a little or a lot and say let's talk about what leaders can do to well not just to enable this but to create an agile organization we we talked about understanding how the deliverable feature is more important than an arbitrary deadline that some someone set yeah. at one point um but but what are some of the other focus areas or or actions that leaders in a business or or leaders in an organization can take mm -hmm. to make the the organization more agile i think there are behaviors you can encourage so there's structural things like maybe how you design a team and just like agile i think there's so many good ways to do that that it's tough for me to maybe give advice there without knowing more about where you're starting from you know i can describe how my team's organized but i think there are behaviors that are common a leadership team has to drive in fact because again going back to what we talked about earlier the whole org from every aspect of commercial and every aspect of development every everywhere in between if they're not all bought in on agile and you're not an agile you're not you're not gonna have an agile engineering team you're not gonna have an agile product and so leadership really needs to drive these behaviors so one of them is that this whole idea of welcoming late requirements or embracing changing requirements can be really really painful you know you did days worth of backlog grooming at some point and you your product team is and design team and user interview team are out there gathering all these requirements turning over every rock right because even in agile you're planning right you're not you're not just throwing a dart at the wall it can be emotionally painful when things come up when you learn new information that invalidates hard work so as a leader you can really change those conversations it cannot be a blame game you cannot ask the question how could we miss this requirement right if you trust your teams your teams did an appropriate amount of research, not too much research and not too little on requirement gathering at the start of a feature, start of a sprint, start of a project. Then these light requirements are the nature of the game. These will happen. And so there's no, there's no, how could we miss this requirement? You welcome it. You celebrate it. You know, as a leader, I'm trying to say, I'm so glad we found this out now. Really? That Imagine small. if we found it out two months later, you know, like it would yeah. have been so much worse. Right. The world is always evolving. So to be surprised or frustrated when it evolves tells your team that you expect perfection. And I don't expect perfection. Perfection is impossible. A team striving for perfection will fail. A team striving to be pretty good can be pretty good. And that's, you know, that's agile. I certainly recommend listening to Brene Brown. She talks about daring leadership celebrating question asking is another thing that comes to mind that it's more important to be a learner and get it right than to be a knower and be right because again just like you can't keep it up yeah you can't keep it up and just like our products in, in agile is constantly evolving because our customers are constantly evolving and just like our team and its practices are constantly evolving because our team is constantly evolving in that same way our knowledge and, and what we're good at is constantly evolving. So there is no this armored behavior of, well, I know, I know the right solution to this problem. That's, as a leader, the kind of thing you need to, first of all, emulate the opposite of. You need to emulate that question asking, that vulnerability. And you need to encourage your employees to stay with some of these hard conversations that you're going to have. Again, changing your product and changing your org. There's a whole, there's a whole industry called change management because of how hard this is, right? To constantly change is to constantly feel pressure and feel pain in certain directions. And that's vulnerability. You know, and Brene Brown talks about how leaning into that vulnerability is the behaviors of daring leaders. And it's not easy. And it's a skill that you have to grow. And I think celebrating that skill and showing your team that and, and, and growing that within your team is the way that your team can then grow more painlessly and grow more quickly and do the same to the product, right? I think you're seeing there's a mirror effect between what you expect your product to do and what you expect your teams to do, right? If your team isn't constantly growing, your product's not going to constantly grow. So they're really just hand in hand. Yeah, well, uh, what really came to my mind is that as individuals, we are usually struggling if change comes our way. And right. especially if we were not expecting it, Right. you know, if you're not in the mindset of, you know, like, things will always be changing, then sometimes even minor things are, are very hard to accept. You know, like your car breaks down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my car is 22 years old, so yeah, it breaks down all the time. I kind of expect it. But like, even if your car is a year and a half old, which just happened to one of my friends, <laughs> it breaks down, it breaks down 
when you are crossing the border from another country. And you yeah. have to be able to to deal with it as an individual in order to yeah. make sure that you can help your team deal with it too. Exactly. And some empathy for how hard that can be is really valuable to bring as, as a leader. Because yeah, I, I'm the same way. I get comfortable with a certain set of processes or a certain team behaviors. I'm like, ah, I wake up, I do this, I do that. It's very comfortable. It's routine, right? And, and it can be very reassuring, like a warm blanket. And so when change happens or when change is, is necessary, yeah, it can, it can feel really exposed, feel really vulnerable. I feel that. I think a lot of us went through this when, you know, at the start of the pandemic, we had to start working from home. I felt very vulnerable as a leader. I felt a total disconnection from, from this beating heart of this product development life cycle. I felt like a lot of what we had was, was gone. I didn't know where it was anymore. And it took me a while to realize it wasn't gone. It just different now it's changed it's just changed yeah okay just for a second i would like to go back a couple minutes because you said thinking out loud maybe i could tell you how my uh, team is uh, structured yeah and if you could i think sure. that would give us a lot of insight and maybe some tips to take away from you definitely yeah so i'll talk i'll talk a little bit about um the more mature team that that was the what i join J and J through, which is the CSATS team. So if you go to CSATS.com, that's the the site I'm talking about. It's a it's a funny acronym with a hyphen in it. Anyways. So this team is at this point been running for, for seven plus years and it's from year to year doesn't even resemble itself, right? It's it's constantly changing. At this point we have a team of it's a pretty small team, but we have a few principal engineers, two principal engineers, a number of senior engineers and even junior engineers uh, with a technical program manager who really helps execute daily activities, obviously as a, as a scrum master, but also as this source of requirement gathering and backlog grooming and an additional interface with product teams and design teams. So we also have in-house. So one thing you'll notice here is that everybody's dedicated to this product. That's one thing I wanted to say earlier about good organizational practices. If you're spread across multiple products, you're probably not doing agile. Your teams can't. So, so each one of these disciplines is dedicated to this product and there are all different facets to it, but they're dedicated to the, the CSATS product. And so the engineering team itself has that strong technical leadership of principal engineers who have a deep understanding of, like I was saying, everything, every aspect of the product. They're able to train and mentor other engineers and of course, they have a passion, an abiding passion and understanding for the customer. And of course, when you have that at the top of your team, it's really easy to hire new engineers and bring them into the fold and expand that culture functionally without it shattering and breaking and kind of undergoing the bad kind of change, like unstructured, un, uh, unintended change. Are you curious about some of the, the scrum ceremonies we follow? And Sure, 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 sure. Tell us about those. Yeah, sure. So. Yeah, so we do follow two-week sprints, and we have, of course, sprint planning at the start of the sprint where we sit down and we, we groom out the work that we're going to be doing over these next two sprints. We, we speak in points instead of hours. That was actually an evolution. We started talking about hours of work, and it was just too real. People yeah, it didn't there be saying, well. Yeah, am I gonna, is this going to take me four hours or five hours? And it, you know, at a certain point, even spending that amount of brain energy trying to understand the difference there is just, forget it. So we, we, we switched to points, where uh, uh, a point is a half a day, two points is a whole day-ish. And then we budget out 15 points per sprint per person, which you'll notice is not quite a full two weeks. Because at a certain point, a point stops actually referring to an amount of time. And it's just an arbitrary measurement of a ticket. And so you can, you can do these great exercises, which we've done recently, where you compare past tickets. You say, OK, here was a five-point ticket that we did recently, you know, did it really take five points of time? Does it compare well to other five-point tickets? The goal here is that your team understands what a five-point ticket feels like. What five points actually is, is kind of not the point. Because as, as your team develops and ships, you'll gauge the velocity of your team in points. Uh, and you'll make that your target. And you'll work on making that better. So yeah, we do our sprint planning to try and, and get that all aligned. We actually have moved to three times a week stand-ups, which is not something I, I hear done very often. Instead of five, the feedback from team was, look, we Tuesdays and Thursdays, we want to be heads down. 
We don't have major updates. We have a really strong collaboration and communication on Slack. We're going to lean into that on those days. Uh, and we'll provide our stand-up updates Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So we've been doing that for a little while. And then sprint retros, of course, at the end of a sprint. I think those are some of the most important conversations to drive as a leader because I think that they are the the bow on this whole concept of continuous improvement. Without a sprint retro, a retrospective, where you look back and you say what went well, what didn't go well, and what do we want to do differently, you aren't actually going to evolve, right? People will have complaints and they'll bring them to you on a one-on-one and they'll just float out there in nothingness. The sprint retro is where you air those out as a group if there are problems, where you say the things that you want to keep doing. I think it's really important to take notes to capture those things. And sometimes as a leader to actually make a bit of a top-down call of like, hey, I'm hearing four people complain about this. Right. That's it. We're doing it differently. Because sometimes organic change isn't quite enough. You have to kind of push, I think. Right. And here is where vulnerability comes in. You kind Mm -hmm. of have to show how you are vulnerable to your team so they can also mirror that behavior in a sense. Yeah. Vulnerability is a part of Agile because vulnerability is, is necessary for change. Are there any ceremonies that you wanted to talk about? So, so I think I covered the, you know, those are some of the basic agile ceremonies. There are also things like sprint, you know, backlog grooming, which I, I don't necessarily think is the most important thing to talk about. However, but the other part that I do want to talk about is it's not so much a sprint ceremony. The way we do things is that each engineer is focused on a, a feature. They're also responsible for testing, right? So the code they write, they're going to test and they're going to deploy. It's end-to-end ownership of a feature which can be very challenging. It actually requires a certain type of engineer. And some folks don't like to work that way, and that's perfectly fine. It's a personal choice. But you know, we seek folks who do like to work that way. There's a set of conversations before any of that happens that are some of the secretly the most important conversations possible. That's where some of the most aggressive shifting of what is the minimally viable product, minimally lovable product, happen. Where you have that product design and engineering leads in a room And you're talking about, hey, we know that the customer, going back to my previous example, they want to get across the country as fast as possible. And you have these really messy dialogues about, okay, well, what's the simplest engineering thing we could do that we could also design well that fits into our user experience well, that also delivers incremental value against that? And people often ask me for an agenda for those conversations. And I'm like, I don't, there's no no agenda. We're going to have to have, have it out. Like, I don't quite... Know how it's going to go. Somebody's going to make a suggestion. It's a chicken and egg problem where people are like, well, I can't give you an effort estimate until you tell me what I'm building. And people are like, well, I don't know what to build until you tell me how hard it is to build. Right? You're stuck. So you just have to get ideas out on the floor and have this organic dialogue about, well, okay, that's an extra large t-shirt size. But actually, it makes me think of something that would be a small t-shirt size if we built it this way. And that's where those engineers who deeply understand the intent of the product, the intent of the feature are able to drive that recommendation engine, drive that dialogue, and get you unstuck from that chicken and egg problem. Sometimes I see teams where it's just requirements are brought to engineers, the engineers estimate it, and then it goes into a sprint backlog. That's not agile. You missed the agile part of really iterating on an MVP. If you didn't have those tough dialogues, what Brene Brown calls rumbling, you know, leaning into vulnerability and having these having these kind of dialogues that might not necessarily... I... Feel great. I was just thinking that, yeah. Yeah. If you can't rumble <laughs> as a team, then you, you missed a core step of Agile. And so that's not a scrum ceremony. I don't even know if it's a ceremony or not. It's just a, it's a part of that. It is now. It is now. We just defined it. <laughs> <laughs> and what you just said really made me think about our topic of an Agile organization and working in such... Just based on our conversation, and I can never objectively say that, based on all of my life's experiences and all the steps I've taken that got me here, and based on our conversation, I think that one of the biggest resistance points against Agile might be all the difficulties that people feel when they discover change Mm -hmm. or when they don't know what they're doing or when they are in the old sort of leadership of I have to be the authoritative boss here and I have to be able to provide security to my people Mm -hmm. and if I don't know what we are doing then nobody knows and they are inherently going to be feeling unsecure and they are Mm going to leave so 
how do you overcome the internal resistance if it comes to an organization and mm -hmm. you want to make them agile or you want to make them see how agile might be the way? I'm not sure I've thought about it in those terms. That's a really excellent point. I think you're right. Often I think of the the lack of predictability, you know, that I, you can't give a two-year roadmap is one of the big reasons people are uncomfortable with Agile, but you're exactly right. Just the inherent need to change and, and going back to that word vulnerability, the requirement for vulnerability is uncomfortable. Uh, so how do you how do you get over that? I think there are ways you can demonstrate in a more traditional manner the value of Agile. We can talk all we want about how nice it is to have vulnerable teams and, and teams that are that are daring and, and willing to embrace change. But I think a very hard-nosed business leader would say, okay, yeah, but show me, show me the money. Right. The numbers. Show me the numbers. And that's a fair question. We owe that side as well. So I think there are ways we have to talk about agile deliverables that help us message the value to leadership. So one of those to me is, again, going back to the discussion of well, how do you actually know if your agile iterations are, if your little product iterations are, are being successful? You must have done these two things. Number one, you must have defined success metrics for this feature, you know, not just for the product, for CSAS.com, right? One of its key values is how many videos it's capturing and then delivering back to customers. If that's the only number that we use to evaluate a feature, then how am I gonna evaluate a feature that lets two surgeons chat with each other? Does that drive more video uploads? Like, who knows? It's the wrong question. The success metric needs to be tailored to that feature. So what is it? So if you define that success metric, and then as a part of the engineering process, you've ensured you captured data to measure that success metric. And then the third one is that you have a, a really powerful and awesome analytics engine and analytics team to actually measure that. Then you have this tidy success story or failure story. And that's okay too, to say to leadership, hey, in this sprint, we launched this, we monitor it for whatever amount of time we needed to to get statistically significant data we can talk about that another time and here here's the output we're seeing we're seeing the change this positive change and look it only took us two weeks to build and two weeks to measure boom and i think frankly you can do just as exciting of a job explaining the inverse hey it took us two weeks to build and it tanked oh my gosh this feature bombed you guys and now we know and we failed we failed so fast so fast that we have all this time the rest of the quarter to do a different thing Right. I think if you're talking about it that way and you're talking about, you know, sprint demos can be a great way to do this as another ceremony. You're bringing leaders into your sprint demos. You're showing them this sprint. I finished this. We built this. It's going live. That's exciting. And it shows progress on a project that might have a, you know, an 18 month waterfall type path to launch. It's so hard to show incremental progress because it's like, what do you what'd you do today? And it's like, still working. What well, how about next month? Well, we're still working. Still on target. And I think leaders get really nervous. Agile actually solves that nervousness. It's like, no, here's what we launched. Here it is. And it'll either succeed quickly or fail quickly. And, and then we'll iterate again. So if you ship so fast, are you constantly looking for the customer to, to tell you whether or not the, the feature was good in their eyes? Or do you give them some time to actually get used to it or see the volume? That's an art form, what you're saying there. So numbers, being data-driven is important. You're capturing relevant metrics that try their best to get at saying, yes, this feature is having the impact I hoped it have, or no, it isn't. Because the data is going to be, obviously, a little bit more unbiased than your customers will. But the funny thing about being data-driven is, I actually think the whole concept of being data-driven has gone way too far. People think the data somehow speaks for itself. No. Data? It does not. Data doesn't speak for itself. Data has no opinions. It's so unbiased <laughs> that it says nothing at all, right? So the data informs this very human storytelling that has to come out of it. And that's, again, one of the incredible jobs that product management really needs to lead is to take that data and say, and it's a very emotional discussion, did that drive the change I expected? And that's where customer voice comes into, not only customer voice. And not only data, but the merger of those two. So finding a way to constantly be getting feedback from your customer, yes, is essential. I think the only, just the caveat there is that, again, and, and you see this with surgeons in a hilarious way. If you ask them, hey, here's seven features. Would you like these seven features? Are these, would you use these? They will say yes seven times. <laughs> if, you, if you put a menu in front of someone, they're like, is this a good menu? They're like, yeah, it's a great menu. 
And if you ask them what they want, they'll tell you what they want. But of course, your job is to give them what they need. Not that, because they might say, I need, yeah, I need an ultrasonic spaceship to get to the other side of the country. And you're like, I think what you need is you need faster, simpler transportation. You managed to deliver me a solution, which was an ultrasonic jet that I, by the way, cannot build for you. But I can move the needle in that direction for you because I understand what you need. And I've managed to kind of excavate what you want. And so, yes, customer voice is essential. You've got to get through the want down to the need. And then when you're evaluating the success of your feature, that customer voice, I think, blended with genuine data measuring what you care about. Thank you. Yeah. That is something that should be maybe written on a wall. We have run out of time. I have two more questions. Yeah, I have more time. Thank you. We always like to give a word of warning to our listeners and watchers to see if they can realize before they make a mistake by listening to an episode. What are some of the typical mistakes when an organization is either trying to go agile or is trying to call itself an agile organization? Do you have anything to share about that? Yeah, I think we can pull different elements from what we've talked about to answer that question. I think one of the most common ones I see is just this idea that an engineering set of ceremonies that is what it means to go agile. And again, like I said earlier, that couldn't be further from the truth. You don't have to do scrum. Yeah, you can you can do none of that. No stand-ups, no any of that stuff. You're still you can still be agile. And again, business can be agile, of which engineering is yes, that beating heart within it, but all have to work in concert across the entire organization. So and then another mistake I think is that and this is something you you know, I, I'm challenged with the J and J. It's such a large organization that it's matrix, like capital M matrix. So you often have partners, you often have key stakeholders who are helping your product development life cycle. You might be one out of eight businesses they support. And that's an understandable way to, to resource these very large businesses. You've got to figure out how to change that. It's not that they can't necessarily support eight businesses, but they need to be bought in back on your product market fit and your product's goals and timelines. And they need to be accountable to the same deliverables you are. If there's not shared accountability, right? If one team's focus is, well, you know, I just really want to ship this one piece of technology. I'm so excited about it. I really want to build it and build it well. And then I'm going to go talk about it at, you know, AWS reInvent. And another team is focused on a customer need here. And another team's focused on just minimizing the amount of churn or work they have. You're working on three different things. You're not, you're not aligned. So you won't make decisions together. You know, one of these going back to the initial you know, agile manifesto that we that we prefer individuals and interactions over processes and tools that only works when the individuals and interactions are aligned to the same goal because then those interactions can be very light very low number of meetings in a really agile org because you you know what you're working on you're all aligned to the same thing you trust each other and there isn't this need to have 14 hour long alignment meetings of trying to get everybody on the same page so i think that when you're going agile you need to take a hard look at every little matrix to piece of the business that you're trying to make agile and think about how you can either make those people who are fractionally contributing, how you can make them accountable to the same goals, or possibly how you can unmatrix your org, how you can dedicate resources that can really buy in. Unmatrix your org. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Thank you. And to end on a high note, I would like to ask you if you have a success story or your story, for example, of going into a huge organization, of transforming a group of people to a truly agile group of people. Yeah, great question. Like I said earlier, <clears throat> there's no agile nirvana. So I won't claim that I've ever transformed any organization into a truly agile org, but that certainly times where we have gone far down the road of becoming more agile and I think are continuing down that trajectory. So I think that J&J, again, is, is a extraordinarily successful medical device company. And medical devices is possibly an, another great example of where agile doesn't add a lot of value. It, it depends, but it's not a place where agile typically is the right methodology. And so there's been a lot of education that I've talked about here of speaking about well, hey, when you're in the cloud, when you're delivering cloud software and you have this opportunity to constantly iterate and learn from your customers, you must embrace that opportunity or your, your competitors. Well, this is something that, that we must do. So 
in this digital surgery org, as we've started up new projects, ones like this preoperative surgical planning service, for me, the most important part has been trying to form this really cohesive product development part inside of the org. If you can get that right, I think that you can build from the inside out. So if you have really strong product management that's willing to really champion tough decisions and hard calls, and you have product-minded engineering leaders, and you have design baked in with that, and you start doing sprints. You know, at the beginning just of this year, we, we really wiped clean our process, and we started from scratch with two-week sprints with aggressive backlog grooming because the, the product we're building is so complex uh, that it really requires a different way of doing things. We needed a business analyst to actually groom requirements and help us see into the future of what it is we're going to need to be doing. That, I think, has started this organizational change. It's demonstrating, okay, we're delivering constant software and sprints. We have buy-in from product. We have strong product leadership in UX. My job as a leader is I can now start to grow those boundaries. I can take that little beating heart, that little nascent baby life of Agile, and hopefully bring others into the fold of it. And so for me, the success story there is, is starting with that product development life cycle, getting it right, and then continuing to bring partners in whatever disciplines you need into that experience. It's a constant process. I love that. Yeah, you can never achieve Agile Nirvana. No. Thank you. But what brought you to the decision? You said in the beginning of this year, you did this reorganization. Mm -hmm. What was the reason behind it? How did you achieve at that solution? Mm -hmm. The answer is that, to be very honest, we were waterfall up until then. We, there were so many complex dependencies on this product, more so than I've seen in many aspects of my career before. So many different needs, so many different inputs, technology inputs, where different vendors or different software solutions are necessitating different design decisions by our team. That for us, we felt as though we had to sit back, plan out an entire launch, right? And really act waterfall. And probably to no surprise, there were deadlines missed. Things weren't going to plan. There were unexpected gaps and changes that were causing us to routinely be blowing up our waterfall plans. This speaks a little bit to something I said earlier of when you're trying to get to your 1.0, it can be so messy to do agile, right? Because you aren't iterating on an in-market product. You're, you're iterating still on a code base that isn't live. So I think for us, we just had a pain point of, of really realizing some of the things that I, I probably should have known based on this conversation that we've got to start back from scratch. We need to identify our pain points. I mean, we hired a business analyst, which I have personally not worked with before because in retros, we looked around and said, Guys, we do not understand some of these interactions with all these other technology inputs. We need help. We need someone whose job is simply to groom the backlog, gather requirements, and get input from stakeholders. That's going to actually allow us to be agile. I think it would have been easy to say, and that will then allow us to project out you know, a perfect waterfall timeline. But instead, for me, the, the point is that will allow us to actually get to a consistent velocity of deliverables. Yeah. Thank you. We have covered a lot of ground within Agile and within making not just the organization, but yourself and your team and the organization, a more Agile organization. And we also covered that you cannot arrive at Agile Nirvana, but you constantly have to face the same discomforts of being vulnerable and maybe changing plans or arriving at conclusions of yeah. what not to do. Is there anything else that you would like to add so our listeners or watchers have that key insight or key takeaway or word of warning, whatever it may be from you? If there is an agile nirvana, I'd say it's when your team is humming along, making changes frequently, advocating for those changes themselves. Certainly my job as a leader starts to be lighter be less involved, be frankly a lot more fun. And you start to feel, for me, that nirvana is that fluidity of change. That's the joy in it. And seeing this constant impact on customers, seeing this constant product impact, 
So there is no nirvana. You're constantly evolving. But if, if there is a truly happy place and if people needed a, a justification to try and step into this, right? It's that, frankly, there's nothing more fun than that really collaborative, capable team that's doing things like this. It just feels like you're flying. It feels fun. Thank you. I got that feeling right now. I, I want to go there. Thank you so much. Dearest listeners and watchers, we have arrived at the conclusion of our conversation. Today, my guest was the director of software engineering from Johnson & Johnson, Tyler Hartley. Thank you so much for joining us. We talked about building and shaping a truly agile organization and not just creating a scrum team of which you now know the differences and the pitfalls. And I am Carolina Tot. I wish you good luck. Tyler, thank you so much for joining us today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for staying with us. This was the Level Up Engineering Podcast by Apex Lab. Check them out at apexlab.io. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel, rate our content, and share your thoughts on this episode. See you next time.